Let's pray and ask God to, to speak to us this morning through his word. Heavenly Father, we've been on a journey together, walking through the book of James, Lord, hearing from, from one of your first pastors, one of your first preachers, and, and, and how to walk in Christ and, and what the call of Christ is. And, and Lord, uh, the word from James is pretty challenging. Lord, we've learned that that, that book is, is written, that letter was written to Christians that were scattered abroad and, and calling them to live out their faith. And so, Lord, each week we've been hitting some tough topics, and this week, Lord, we hit another one. And, Father, I just pray today that you instill, us, instill in us uh, ears and a heart to hear, but then instill in us humility to follow and go and do. That's the call with James, Lord, and he keeps telling us to, to not just be hearers, but to be doers. And so, Lord, I pray for this message today that we'll hear, that we'll receive it with an open heart, open mind, and then, Lord, that we'll go and put into action what we hear. Father, speak in this room. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when it comes to, the, comes to the topic of conflict, I think many fear it like the grass in the African proverb that says, when bull elephants fight, the grass always loses. Sometimes that's our mindset. We think, I don't want to get into conflict. I want to avoid conflict because in conflict, there's always a loser, and I don't want to be one of those on the end of losing. Others of us dread conflict much like opening the proverbial can of worms without knowing how to get it back in. We think, oh my goodness, am I going to address this issue of conflict that's going to pop out and it's going to make a big mess? I'd rather not. Let's just keep it all, all stuck in that can, even though we know the chances are it may explode one day, but we'd rather try to pack it all back in. So the question for us to think about today is how do we handle conflict? That's what we're going to get into. How do we handle it? If you're alive this morning, and I assume because you're here, you are. If you're breathing, if you are around people, you will quickly discover that conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen. I mean, between husband and wife, there'll be conflict. Between mother and daughter, between father and sons, between boss and employee, between co-worker to co-worker, from neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, from country to country, and even from church member to church member. Conflict's going to happen. The only way some people think to avoid conflict is to go off on an island and live by yourself. But truth be told, that won't even solve the problem because there's a conflict going on inside of us as well. Have you ever wondered or thought things like, why do I have such a hard time maybe getting along with my spouse? Why are we constantly at odds? You ever wondered and thought, man, I just wish my, my relationship with my children or my adult children, I just wish my relationship with my children was better. Or you ever wondered, why is it so hard for me to get along with, and you fill in the blank, why is it so hard to get along with this person or with that person? Why, why do people in church, you ever wonder, why do people in church who say they love God, why do they fight? Why, why do they get in arguments? Why, why do churches get in such fights sometimes that they go through a church split or a church division? James is going to answer these questions for us today. Turn to James chapter 4 with me. In this passage, we're going to learn how to conquer conflict. He gives us the causes and he gives us the cures. He gives us the reasons and the re remedy for conflict. He gives us the who, the why, and the how. Who is the cause of conflict? Why are we having conflict? And how do we, we resolve the conflict? James is going to kind of try to set us straight on the causes and cures and conflict. And remember, James doesn't beat around the bush in how he addresses Christians. At the very start of this message, all I want to ask you to get in your mind 
I want you to think about somebody. Who is it, or what group of people, who is it you find yourself at odds with or you have a conflict with? Are you walking through a conflict right now? Is there a person that when you think of conflict, you're, man, that person, i just constantly dealing with it. I want you, if you will, to get that person in your mind, but maybe even write their name on your growth guide. Or maybe you're like, I can't write their name. They might see my growth guide. Maybe you just put a marker or initial or something that reminds you of who that person is. James tells us, because you're going to get more out of this message if you're thinking about somebody or something or a conflict or a challenge you're walking through. James tells us that there are three areas of conflict. There's conflict with others, there's conflict with ourselves, and there's conflict with God. We have conflict with others because we have a conflict going on on the inside of us. We have a conflict in our personal lives because we have a conflict with God. And so as we walk through this passage, we're going to unpack that thinking. What's the causes of conflict? James 4.1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Again, you're not beating around a bush. He gets right to the point. I mean, James says, the cause of conflict is conflicting desires. Conflicting desires that are inside of us. When my wants conflict with your wants, then sparks are going to fly. When my desires conflict with your desires, then there's potential that we're going to butt heads. Conflict, if you notice, starts very early in life. Even before you could talk. I mean, have you ever noticed that a baby, if his needs or her needs are not instantly gratified, they let you know and they can argue with you even when they can't talk? I mean, it starts at a very young age when they can raise up and create some conflict. Have you ever noticed that marriage has built-in conditions for conflict? I think one day I'd like to have a conversation with God and say, can you tell me about this, exper- about this experiment you put us under? Why did you do that? I mean, you think about the things you expected of your spouse before you got married, how idealistic it was, and, and then how unrealistic you were about marriage. It, maybe you thought it was going to be this just perfect bliss and everything was going to be great and wonderful. What a rude awakening was when the day that you woke up and said, I'm married. What did I get myself into? I mean, all marriages go through three stages. Stage one is happy honeymoon. Stage two is the party's over. And stage three is let's make a deal. At stage three, you have to learn how to handle conflict because it's going to happen. If you've been married for any length of time, you know it's going to happen. There are going to be conflicting desires, frustrated feelings that cause this fight. What desires? The Bible makes it very clear here and other places in Scripture that there are three basic desires that cause conflict. These desires are legitimate desires unless they're out of control because the desires are inside of us and we're made in the image of God. They're, given, they're God-given desires, but when we put them above Others, other people, they become number one in your life. They'll cause conflict. Let's talk about these desires I see in the text. The desire to have things. Materialism. Put possessions. Look at verse 2. You want what you don't have. You long for what others have. God created you for things and to want things. But when you want what others have and you want it so bad that, that you desire it, then it can create conflict. See, we use things and we love people. The problem is when we start loving things and using people. The problem is when we want things so bad that we use and abuse people. When we start loving things and using people, then we have it backwards. When we start loving things and using people, we start to manipulate them, controlling them, moving them around to get what we want because things become more important in our lives. Very easy to fall in love with things these these days with all the TV commercials and the advertisement and all the social media advertisement the desire to have becomes number one in our life and that creates conflict 
It's not by accident that Gallup poll says that 56% of all marriages that end in divorce end because of money problems. And many times the things of the marriage become the battleground. We as Americans think the Constitution says life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. And we see that in a marriage. Well, you bought that car, so I'm going to buy my thing. You want an vacation, I'm going to do my thing. You bought those clothes, I want to buy my thing. And that becomes a challenge. Someone asked Howard Hughes one time, he used to be the richest man in the world, how much does it take to make a man happy? He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And sometimes we start pursuing those desires and those dreams. Here's the challenge, though, is the thrill wears off very quickly. We must learn to deal with the desire to have. If you decide to base your life on comparing to other people, you'll never be happy, no matter how much you get. Because just the time you catch up with the Joneses, they refinance and buy another car. Many times the desire inside of us for stuff creates conflict. James says the desire to feel good, that we want to feel good, that we want to be comfortable, that we want our... Our senses to be satisfied. Verse 3 says, you want only what will give you pleasure. And it's not wrong to enjoy life. God has created inside us a desire to feel good, a desire for pleasures. Matter of fact, 1 Timothy 6 says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So the things he gives is for our enjoyment. The problem is when the pleasure becomes the number one goal in your life, that if it feels good, do it, and then you're asking for conflict. And it's like, i got to have that stuff because that stuff will make me feel good. When my pleasure takes place over what my needs are, then I'm going to really be in trouble. The fact is I'm more interested in, the, in my comfort than I am in, in your comfort. When I think about that, that makes me feel good. And so the desire inside of me will cause conflict because I want something that maybe you have. So we have this idea that the more I have, the better I'll feel. And that feeling only lasts for a short time. And we understand that, but we still pursue it. And think about it, buying a new car, it makes you feel really good. I bought this brand new car, and it smells brand new, and it's wonderful, and it, there's no scratches, and there's no dents, and, and there's nothing on the floor, and then you get your kid in it, and they spill something. And then time goes by a little bit more, and it's getting dusty, and it gets dirty, and you've gone to the store, and someone opened your car door and put a big scratch in your car, and all of a sudden that car that was once new, that was making you feel good, is now becoming a stress, because now it's getting wore down, and also the car payment is starting to pile up. And sometimes we pursue that kind of stuff, and those desires just to feel good through stuff in this world will not last. He also says the desire to be number one. Now, I want me first. We are living in a world where people are all wrapped up in themselves, that I should have the recognition, and I should have the pats on the back. Proverbs 13.10 says, Pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. So simple. Only by pride comes contention. Why is that? Because I'm too proud to compromise, and that causes conflict. H have you ever watched children who wrestle together? Have you ever watched how they wrestle, and neither one wants to give up until the other one gets pinned down, and then when they get them pinned down, you know, I'm not going to say mercy, I'm not going to say I give up or I quit, because one's got to win. And, you know, that, and that's kind of been the wrestling in my house with two teenage boys for a long time, been wrestling, and you know, I'd pull them down until they finally give up. It's pride. You know, Dad's going to win. Yesterday, my pride was squashed. For the first time, I said, Caleb, I'm done. I give up. And now they're too big and too strong to continue wrestling with them. 
Pride causes arguments. It's the bottom line of all things. The next time you're in an argument, stop and ask the question, is it really worth it? Is what I'm arguing about right now, is it really worth it? Fourthly, James says, unfulfilled desires cause conflict. Look at verses 2 and 3. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. He's saying you have some desires that have not been fulfilled. Why don't those desires get fulfilled? James says one is because we don't pray. Verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. James is saying you're in conflict because you haven't stopped to talk to God about this. We don't ask God because God cannot answer a prayer that has not been prayed. You haven't taken it to him. There's no way he's going to answer it. Why don't we ask God for help? I think it's because we're we're self-sufficient, or we think we're self-sufficient. I I think we look to the wrong source. We look to people to fulfill our needs instead of looking to God. And he says, I'll meet your needs, just pray. And when we pray, usually prayer with the wrong motive then, we ask things in a selfish way. And the Bible has said that everything I need comes and provided by God. He'll meet the desires that I have, the feelings I have, to be, to feel, even some of the luxuries. In Philippians 4.19, it says, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that when I pray in a situation, God, would you take care of this situation? God, I want your will to be done. God, would you take care of this? Do we really believe it? I think the challenge is many times we'd rather fight instead of pray. We'd rather argue about something than, than go to the Lord and look for an answer. I mean, we're in the middle of a conflict. What is the last thing on your mind? The last thing on your mind is, I better pray about this. Many times what's on our mind is, I'm going to win this argument. I, I'm going to win th- this battle. We look to others instead of looking to God, and that causes conflict because we'd rather try to work it out ourselves. Why don't I pray? I think the basic answer to why we don't pray is because we think, I don't need God. See, if we really thought that I needed God, then we would depend upon Him. We, we would trust Him. James says we have a lot more peace if we just prayed more. We'd have a lot less to worry about, a lot less to argue about, a lot less to fight over if we just prayed more. I, I like the old hymn that says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We have lack of peace and worry because we don't take things to prayer. Secondly, James says we pray with the wrong motives. In verse 3, he says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You may say, Brian, I have prayed and I have prayed and I have prayed, but Brian, I'm not seeing results. James says, check your motive. There are times that we pray, but we pray at the wrong motives. James says you ask with the wrong motives. Let me say this. God is concerned about your legitimate needs and desires God has promised to meet those. However, we ask God for something, the wrong reason or, or the wrong motive or, or, or a sick and diseased attitude, God will not kind of answer that prayer. His answer will be no, because he, he knows that your desire is just for yourself and for your own selfishly pleasures. James is talking about squandering things away and wasting them away. In this context, it means to squander and waste it on selfish pride. Thirdly, James says, you have unfulfilled desires because you have a ruptured relationship with God. Look at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I'd say most of us in this room understand what adultery is. 
We understand that adultery is when a married person is having an affair with someone else who is not their spouse. This is the language that James is using here. James is saying the church of Jesus Christ is married to him. We're married to him. And when we're having an affair with the world, when we're, we're being unfaithful to our heavenly spouse, we're telling him that we are not pleased with him and that we're not satisfied with him. And you know that if you're unfaithful in your husband or wife, you're going to have conflict. And if you're unfaithful to God, there's going to be conflict inside of you. We've committed spiritual adultery in the church when we become friends with the world, and we need God's forgiveness. And this cry of Scripture from James is here is don't have one foot in the world and one foot in me. Be completely sold out. It's the cry that we see in Revelation that says, don't be hot. Don't be lukewarm, or be hot, or be cold. Verse 5 says, Don't you think that Scripture says about reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intently because God is a jealous God and that He will not share us with anybody else. You don't want to share us with the world. You cannot serve God in this world. You either totally serve God or you totally serve the world. There's no in-between. You're either God's or you're not God's. And James is saying there's... there's unfulfilled desires, there's challenges because your relationship with God is broken because we're choosing the world. You see the conflicts? I mean, you see maybe having conflict in your life, desire of things, desire to feel good, desire to be number one, unselfish desire, so then you have to ask the question, well, what's the answer? And I love how James lays this out and says, here's their conflicts, now let me give you the answers. And he lays it right out, and the first answer he points us to is the grace of God. The answer is the grace of God. We all need God's grace to end conflicts with others and ourselves. Look at verse 6. It says, God gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, he says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. We receive the grace of God in humility. I mean, what is grace? Grace is God's power to change. What, what, would like, what would you like to change about yourself? Whatever it is, we need the grace of God to do it. What do you want to change about your relationships, your marriage, your family, your relationship in the church? Whatever you would like to change, we need the grace of God for that to happen. You can't change it on your own. You can't change it in your own power. We need the power of God, and that's called God's grace. Grace is the power to change, and there's only one way. That's to let grace do it. You humble yourself. What does it mean to be humble? The word that we don't even really talk about much today because it seems like pride is running rabbit. Humility means to be to be down to earth, to not have an inflated opinion of yourself. It's the opposite of sinful pride. Here's how the Bible defines it. Apostle Paul defined it in Romans chapter 12. He says, For the, by, by grace been given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's humility. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that has been given to you. In other words, lower your, your opinion of yourself is what Paul's saying. God doesn't give grace to people who are full of pride and think, I can do it on my own, because he actually opposes the proud. First Peter says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And when we walk in pride, we're not going to get the blessing of God. He gives grace when we come and say, God, I need your help. God, I can't do it on my own. How do we receive God's grace? One is we've got to give in to God. Look at verse 7. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. That's the answer. Submit. Give in. What does that mean to submit? Submission is a military word that means to rank under, to subject oneself to another, to obey and to place oneself in proper rank. To submit then is to yield to the authority and will of another. In this context, 
When we find ourselves in conflict with others, we're to yield our lives and will to the authority of God. We're to obey God rather than our fleshly desires. When we find ourselves in conflict with others, our flesh rises up and wants to fight and wants to argue and wants to win with the person of conflict we're in. Our flesh wants to prove a point to the other person. When you submit to God yourself, you're giving God control in your life and you're putting Him in charge and you're saying, God, it's not about me, it's about you. God, I don't have to win this battle. Y'all can let you have it. God, whatever you want. The starting point is to quit trying to run your own life. Verse 1 says, your desire is at battle within you. And so humility says, God, this is my desire, but I put it in your hands. James says that conflict happens with other people. It happens because you have a conflict on the inside. It's a conflict. You, you don't get along with other people because because you've got a civil war, so to speak, going on inside of your life. That is the real issue. The starting point is getting peace inside before you can have peace on the outside. And James is saying, if you're having a lot of uh, conflict on the outside, then you better stop and look on the inside and see what's going on. See, the real conflict is inside of you. And James is saying, who's in charge of your life? Who's really in charge? If you're in charge, then anytime somebody comes along that doesn't go the way that you want to go, then you get uptight, you get irritated, you get upset, you, get, you want things the way you want them, and if they don't go that way, then it makes you mad, and you're like, all these people around here make me mad. That's really the Lord speaking to you, say there's something going on inside of you. You're not right with me. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. See, if there's peace on the inside, then there'll be peace on the outside. When we have peace of Christ in our heart, we'll be at peace with other people. And if we don't have this in our life, God's peace in our hearts, then we try to manipulate others, we try to control them, we try to move them around or move our own life around so we can discover peace. James is telling us we need to get our alignment, our lives in alignment with God and His will and His word for our lives. Kind of like taking your vehicle to the auto mechanic and saying, this car's been pulling to the right, and it keeps pulling really bad. And the auto mechanic says, well, put a new tire on. Put a new tire on, you go driving down the road, and you say, the car's still kind of pulling, it's not riding right. Well, let's try a new tire over here, and you put a new tire on. And you spend your money over and over by putting a new tire on, when really the problem could have been fixed by just getting a new alignment. And really, you're going to waste a lot of money, and you and I would not want to go to the auto mechanic and say, hey, give me four new tires and not have them check your alignment and actually make sure your car is aligned. But that's what we do with our lives. We think we'll just put a little fix here and a little fix there and a little fix here, change this situation, change that situation, and if I change the situations, then everything will be fixed and there will be some peace. Here's how you know if you're just trying to change situations or not peace. Have you noticed that you move from one set of relationships to another set of relationships? Hey, these are my friends, and this is all going good. And, but when conflict happens, you're like, man, those people are mean, and they're ugly to me. And so you find a new set of friends, a new set of relationships. But before time, man, this kind of relationship, there's conflict, and there's challenges, there's difficulty. And so you go looking for new friends and new relationships. Or we do it in marriages. Man, I'm inside this marriage. It was great at first, and now it's gone down the tubes, and he's a jerk or she's a jerk, and you're fighting and you're arguing. You say, well, let's go get married to somebody else. I'll leave that one. And you go over here, and it's really good at the beginning. But then you start, all of a sudden, notice I have conflict. What you're doing is you're just changing tires and you haven't got aligned with God. You notice that in your job? Man, I go over this place and I get this job. This is a wonderful job. They're paying me a great job. I have a great insurance plan. It's out of this world. These people are wonderful and that's good for the first six months, eight months, maybe a year, year and a half, maybe two years. After a while, man, that boss is horrible. Those people I work with are terrible. Let's go get a new job. 
And we go get a new job, and in this new job, we start saying, oh my goodness, this is wonderful and great. They're paying me a great salary, a great insurance plan, et cetera, et cetera. But before long, you're like, man, that boss is horrible. And those people I work with, man, they're just horrible people. And you say, let's go get another job. Have you ever stopped to think, maybe the conflict is with me? And let me get a little more personal with some of you. We do that in the church. Lexington, Kentucky, there's 300 churches in the city for 300,000 people. Oh, you know what? That church is wonderful. That preacher is wonderful. And that music is wonderful. And their children's ministry is wonderful. And then you say, I'm going to start getting involved. You start getting involved, you go, oh my goodness, that person, they're kind of, they're kind of a jerk. And that, that person's really hard. And that preacher, I mean, he's not so kind as I thought he was kind. And you start going, yeah, that church is just horrible. And then you leave and you talk about that church. And you're talking about the bride of Christ when you do that. And you slam that church and say, oh, man, that church is horrible, terrible church, terrible, terrible church. Terrible people go to this church and you go to this new church. Oh, this is great church. Oh, it's so wonderful. That preacher is wonderful and their children's ministry is wonderful and their music is wonderful. I think I better start getting involved around here, start getting involved. And you go, oh, my goodness, they have scars and blemishes all over their face. They're kind of ugly and there's all this conflict. I better go find another church. James is saying, you've got to wake up and look at yourself. James is saying to us, if we notice that there is conflict after conflict after conflict after conflict after conflict in our lives, and as we look at relationships and why is there always conflict around me, sometimes we need to stop and we need to look inside and say, am I aligned with God or am I just trying to change some tires? How do we do it? How do we receive the grace of God? Well, we've got to give in to God got to give in to God, first of all. And then secondly, you've got to resist Satan. See, if you haven't submitted to God, it will do you no good to resist Satan. Submission to God must come before you can resist the devil. But submission to God, you're saying, God, I, I submit to you. You're in charge. You are the leader. You are the boss. It's, it's letting him really be Lord of your life. Really let him be Lord, that he's in charge. And you say, God, where you go, I go. What you tell me to do, I'll do. And then next, we resist Satan. You've got to recognize his tactics and know how he operates. We need to be aware and alert, realize what he's doing, realize where the con conflict comes from, and that he's the source behind it. Husbands and wives in this room, you may have been walking in this room today and you're carrying conflict. I want you to know Satan is the source behind the conflict. You may be in a job that's been wonderful, and you're like, man, it's been horrible. Satan is the source behind it. The word resist is a war term. It means to be prepared to stand against, to withstand the attack. The devil wants to destroy your marriage. The devil wants to destroy your relationships. Why? Because he loves conflicts and he loves arguments. He wants to cause confusion and arguments and stress and hurt feelings and disappointment and anger and chaos, and he loves to do it. Absolutely loves it. How does the devil operate? He doesn't stand around with a pitchfork and a red suit like you might see in the Halloween aisle right now. The devil loves to play on your pride, especially, particularly, wounded pride. He tells us that what we want to hear, he's the one who whispers in your ear. He's the one that gives you little thoughts and little suggestions and little ideas. When you're in the middle of the argument, he's the one that starts whispering in your ear things like, you don't have to take this kind of stuff. 
He's the one that says, stand up and fight for your rights. He's the one that says, well, you tell her who's the boss in a home. In a home. He's the one that tells you, uh, wife, to tell, him, tell your husband, now listen, you're not going to boss me around because I'm my own woman and, I, and I'm not going to be bossed by any kind of man. He's the one that puts that kind of stuff in your head. He's the one that says to children, that's my mom and dad, but I can ignore them. He's the one that tells you children, hey, your mom and dad, they're really stupid and don't know anything about life. He's the one that does that. And you need to sit, stand and say, Satan, no longer. Satan, I won't put up with it. Satan, get out of this relationship. You have to resist. And it's really hard at first. But I'll tell you, as you resist and you stand stronger, it gets a little bit easier. First Peter 5 says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. We stand and resist so that Satan doesn't win. There's a great promise there. It says, resist the devil, and he will flee. That means he runs. That means he takes off. You don't have to put up with him. Give into God and get wise to Satan and his tactics. Draw closer to God. Thirdly, verse 8, James says, Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If there is anything that Satan wants to do, is to stop you from getting closer to God. Everything Satan does is to keep you from drawing closer and to growing more intimate with him. And the closer you get to God, the better you get to know him, the better you know him, the more like, you, like him you become. And so then the stronger you'll be able to resist. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I draw close to God? James says, clean your hands and purify your hearts. What he's talking about is the hands represent the outward man or woman, and the heart represents our inward this. James 10, or Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us draw near the true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How can we clean up our lives? How can we clean up our acts, so to speak? Let, let's see what the Word says. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young person stay pure? It's by obeying your Word. There's a great promise there. He'll come near to you. He doesn't back off. He draws close to you. When you move towards Him, God moves towards you. And so we purify ourselves by, by being obedient to his word. You give in to God, you get wise as Satan, you draw close to God. How do you do that? James tells us, be sorrowful for the conflict. Verse 9, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. James is not talking about joy and laughter of salvation here. He's talking about the temporary joy and laughter you get when you win a conflict and leave the other person wounded and hurting. We, we all know the feeling when we've won the fight or so, and we got our point across, and we walk away going, hey, I won that one, and we're not really caring to think about the other person. I got what I wanted. I got my way. Sometimes we get so caught up on our rights that we forget what is right. James is warning us that we, we, we all have rights. But it is not right for us to get what we want at the expense of someone else's spirit and crush their spirit. That's what James is worrying about. Look at verse 2 again. James says, you want something and you kill to get it. You want something and you kill to get it. He's saying, you're destroying people. You're, you're stomping on their heart. You're stomping on who they are in Christ. You have a strong desire to have something and you're willing to destroy others in order to get it. James says, you need to be broken for this. 
You, you need to cry and mourn for this. You need to repent for doing such things. It's destroying you. It's destroying your relationships. Maybe it's destroying a marriage, destroying a work relationship, destroying a friendship, destroying um, a, a relationship between you and your children, destroying a relationship inside your church when you say, I'm going to win. It says you should be broken. There should be tears of a broken heart that wants to repent and say, I've been wrong. If someone says you've hurt them, the truth is you've hurt them. If someone says you've done me wrong, the truth is you probably did them wrong. It may not be a big deal to you, but it was to them. And one of the worst things to say is, well, it really wasn't that big of a deal. He closes in verse 12 with don't be critical or judgmental of others. He says, but brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? See, we don't have the right to be critical and judgmental of others because we don't have or know all the facts. We don't know everything going on inside their lives. Many times we attempt to build ourselves up by tearing others down. If you want to stop the conflict in your life, you want to get along with other people, avoid arguments, learn to ask for forgiveness from others who you've hurt. I want you to go back to the person I actually think about beginning this message. The person that maybe you've had conflict with, or when you think of them, you think there's conflict there, or there's constantly conflict. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to go apologize and do your part? See, maybe they are 95% wrong and you're only 5% at fault, but you take care of your 5% and you let God take care of the 95%, so to speak. Their response is their response. You could go to them and say, I know we've had our differences. I know it's been a difficult ride for us. It's been a difficult journey. I know at times that I haven't been thoughtful. I know at times that I've messed up. A lot of times I haven't thought about you. I've thought more about myself and my needs, but I want to say I'm sorry and ask for your forgiveness. That's our responsibility. Their responsibility is what they do with it. That's between them and God. So if you want to change, the only way you're going to change is to be humble. And the only way to be humble is to ask for forgiveness. It's a hard, but, but hard thing to do, but that's where it all starts at. Admit what you brought in a relationship that was wrong, and it's a humble thing to do. God gives grace to the humble. Maybe this week you need to have a conversation. Maybe this week you need to write a letter or an email. Maybe this week you need to pick up the phone and make the phone call. Maybe this week you need to share a cup of coffee with somebody. Maybe this week you need to look at someone in the eye, and maybe it's the week to humble yourself before the Lord and let Him lift you up and lift up even the friend or the person you're thinking of today. It starts with humility. See, God doesn't want to keep you down on the ground. The way to honor is humility. If you want to be honored by your husband or wife or the Lord, it means humility. It means someone has to take that humble position, and I know it's a hard thing to do. In my marriage with Brianna, I'm usually the one that has the stubborn spirit inside of me. I'm the one that has it in my brain on the tip of my tongue. Brian, just apologize and ask for forgiveness, and I hold on to it, and hold on to it, and hold on to it. It's amazing how when you say, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me, how much healing starts to happen in conversation and take place. Coming and saying, God, I give up. God, I can't do it all on my own. I need your power to resist the devil when he says, when he comes after me and to live at peace. Let me close with these words from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
Why is that? Because pride causes arguments. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's what James is telling us to do. Look to the interest of others. And then go in humility to overcome conflict. Heavenly Father, we hear the words today from your great preacher, teacher, apostle, your pastor, James. And Lord, these words uh, penetrate right to our hearts. Lord, chances are some of us in this room are walking through conflict. Lord, I pray these words, we apply them and we put them to action. Lord, chances are we might be walking through a conflict in a marriage, maybe a conflict at, at work, maybe a conflict with a friend, maybe conflict with a with another relative. Lord, I pray we don't just hear these words and go home and say, yeah, sounds good, but I'm not going to do it. Lord, I pray for humility. I pray that you would humble us in this room, Lord, and that we would lead by example. If there's any areas of conflict, Lord, that we would be the ones. Lord, this world is in conflict, and they need to see Christians living out uh, a spirit of peace, a spirit of humility. And so, Lord, I pray that you instill that in us. And God, I know you set that example for us. I think about the conflict we were in when our sin separated us from you. And we were doomed for destruction. But Lord, you, you saw the conflict and you humbled yourself and gave us Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross. That was a, a major act of humility to say, I'll make that move. I'll take that step to make things right. And Father, we celebrate that in communion every week. And so today, Lord, as we receive communion, remind us that the conflict between us and you is healed because of what you did on, with Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Lord, help us to move. Help us not just to hear these words and then set them aside. Help us to be doers of your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.